Well, greetings. Thank you again. It's so good to see you. Uh, some, some new faces and some familiar faces. You notice I didn't say old. I said new and familiar faces. And uh, so I'll just give a quick introduction of who I am. I'm George Thomason, one of the pastors in La Mirada, and an engineer by trade, 18 years on space shuttle, 20 years on satellites. And I first came to our church uh, in, well, the engineering statement is, if I start talking engineering, then I guess I have two responses. The first one is, you're welcome, or I'm sorry, whichever one is, is most appropriate. But sometimes I love numbers, and they mix in with the equation. I came to Trinity in 1987, and I was a tongue-speaking parachurch Arminian when I came to Trinity. And, <laughs> and you know, I heard the exposition of God's word. In February 87, I went to the evening service. First Samuel was the passage. I took, looked at my notes, and I could draw lines between the two, and I said, this is where I've got to be. The exposition became foundational. And in fact, my, my tongue speaking was addressed by 1 Corinthians 14 and the order that is shown. My parachurch was changed by the proclamation of 1 Timothy 3, where God would have qualified men make to be leaders in the church. And uh, my Arminianism was affected by Ephesians 1. And then when I saw election in Ephesians 1. Then I saw it in John 6, and I saw it in John 10, and I saw it in Romans 9. It just, uh, when, it, when it dawns on you, you begin to see all the ways that it is brought up in the Word, and so that just became marvelous. That was 87, 89, I became a deacon. Uh, you probably know Pastor Rick Horace was a deacon. He became an elder. I became a deacon in his place. He gave me the advice. He said, when you become a deacon, you will see true colors of members in the church, and you are called to love them despite what you see. That was his advice to me. That proved to be very valuable. In 1996, I became a pastor, and interesting enough, we were trying to sell the Bellflower Building, and I had a very differing opinion about how the work was being carried out, and I believe that some of the workers needed defending, and so I stood up as a deacon and uh, I didn't know it at the time, but the other pastor said, maybe he should be a pastor because I was opposing the current thought of how things were being done. And so my, I, I'm usually a very consensus-driven sort of person. I, I look for harmony first, uh, but I had to stand up and oppose a certain path. And they, they saw that and they said, this, this seems good. I, that, seemed to trick some, you know, trip something in their mind that let's consider George for the pastorate. That did occur in 1996, and then now in 2023, it's been about uh, 23, uh, 27 years uh, in the office. Just a brief, and the reason I say those things is that Acts 6, which will be our passage, has caused me to wonderfully thank God for the long history of trouble, guidance, and blessing in the church. And, and so that's our passage today, will be Acts 6. A little introduction to Acts 6. The church is experiencing explosive growth. I mean, 5,000 people at one time are coming into the church. We have probably a church of 20,000 people. So here's some numbers. If you have 12 apostles and you have 20,000 people, that's, that's just a little under 1,700 people per pastor. There's a lot going on there. 
There's no formal organization to how the Hebrew widows are, well, to the Hebrew and all widows are being helped in the church. If you remember, people are bringing uh, funds to money and gifts and property to the apostles to be used in a compassionate way for those that are in need. In fact, one commentator even says, you know the difference between acts and socialism with the giving of goods for all? He says, socialism happens at the end of a gun. But in Acts, we see people willingly, charitably, compassionately giving great sums of money to be distributed. This was to be distributed among the widows, and we'll find that's actually where the contention rises. So what do I love about this passage? I love, as we see in the text, that prayer and preaching are connected solidly to the identity and the mission of the church. We're going to see that very position defended in the text. Also, the process and relationships here. I'm I'm a requirements guy for satellites. We look at relationships between all the parts. This passage is a marvelous study, if you will, in the relationships. Uh, I drew myself a little chart, so I'm going to talk to my own little chart here. We have prayer and ministry of the word, which are the principles leading the apostles. They make this a priority, and when trouble arises in the church, they maintain the priority of prayer and the word. They set up qualifications. They go to the members. All of these are are links. They go to the members to have them choose the deacons who will address the widows who are complaining about an inequity among distribution to the widows and creating division in the church. So this church is exploding, it's growing. The distribution probably came about in an unorganized way. You know when you you have a vague goal and a vague purpose, things don't get delivered like you would think. What if Amazon said, we don't need a delivery service, we don't need to write anything down, we don't need to have any kind of digital backing behind what we deliver, it would just be a mess, right? And some people would say, I'm getting something, and some would say, I'm not. But there was a, um, a, a real problem, and this is what we step into, the trouble that we find in Acts 6. Let's read verse 1. I'll read verse by verse. We'll go through seven verses, but I'll read each one at a time. We'll read the first scripture and then pray, and we'll start in with our points. Acts 6, verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we are now at that height of worship where we receive your word to obey it. We receive your word and ask for the help of your Holy Spirit that we may have our hearts and minds illumined And as we see your grace displayed, we can point to mercy's store as we have just sung. So we ask for your help in the proclamation. We ask for your help in the reception. And again, your name be glorified, for you are a mighty God in all these things. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, six points. I'll have trouble with two points. We'll have guidance with two points. And we'll have blessings with two points. That's my outlay for the sermon this morning. So first point is, deacons address trouble. This is a sobering aspect coming into the diaconate. It's a sobering aspect of the church. The trouble, and you know what? There's even trouble behind the trouble. 
The church is having growing pains. The church is learning how to distribute. And in this, there's actually a misdirected complaint, if you think about it. You have the apostle, you have the word of God in prayer, you have the apostles, you have the distribution of goods, you have the widows. Widows branch into the Hebrew widows and the Gentile widows. The Gentile widows are not receiving the support the Hebrews are. So there is a complaint horizontally looking at the other widows saying, this is wrong that you're getting it. But that is actually a misdirected complaint. How does that solve the problem? You're pointing to the people that are being served and you're saying, that's wrong, I'm upset with that. You eventually have to go back up the chain to see a reorganization. Ultimately at the top, prayer and God's word have to direct everything. And that's where real change comes from. Then it gets enacted by the apostles, and that's what they do. We'll find this is a passage actually doing that very thing. And so a lot of times we have to even kind of check our own complaints. Is it, do we have to reframe how we're complaining? Because sometimes the way we complain, it doesn't solve anything. And in this case, it's not going to solve anything horizontally. Well, they're getting goods. I am upset with you. And this creates a dissension between them. But it doesn't solve the problem. It's, a, it's an endemic problem. It was a failure uh, to, of James 1.27 where we should be caring for the widows and their affliction. And so when a deacon comes to office, they not only see the trouble, they're not only put in to the trouble, but they have to even see the trouble behind the trouble. It's almost like a set of, whenever there's trouble, there's usually a set of dominoes, isn't it? When a couple argues, usually it's, there's dominoes of previous experiences that fall into place. Maybe they weren't forgiven, and that's a domino still standing. Maybe there's still angst, and as one domino hits the other, there's an explosion down the road. And so with trouble, there's often trouble behind the trouble. And here we have the Hellenist widows versus the Hebrew widows. Trouble behind that was the distribution of help to them, and the trouble behind that was probably prejudicial because the Greek widows were seen as not as orthodox as the Hebrew widows. So there's a prejudice even going on here that had to be addressed. And that prejudice probably snuck in because there was a vague structure to deliver this help to the widows. So if you just let something organically work its way through the system, it doesn't work outright in many cases. And there were too few, and to boot, there were too few leaders. That was another trouble behind the trouble. There were too few leaders. You can't have 12 apostles governing 1,700 people each, roughly. So there's trouble behind the trouble. And as coming into the diaconate, you will find that sometimes by association, you will be called the trouble. Uh, it's almost like someone saying, hey, every time I see a house on fire, I see firemen. And so I think firemen are somehow responsible. And people sometimes, when someone comes into your church, maybe they're from the outside, they're expecting a money donation from the church and you're the deacon, they come to you, and you say, well, the priority, I believe scripturally, is to have you go back to your family, to have you be reconnected, to, to go to that normal basis which should be supporting and helping you. And you know what? At that point, I've seen it repeatedly, people will become angry at you. You will be called unloving. You're being loving, and you're setting them on the right course, but they will call you unloving because you don't simply write out a check on the spot. You don't hand out money on the spot. There's actually a higher good that can be done here. They don't see that. They're not expecting that. And when you don't give that, and there's even cases where you may know of someone's background that makes them 
a poor recipient of money, it'll get used the wrong way. And you might even have evidence of this, but sometimes trouble behind the trouble and sometimes you get wrapped up in that trouble. Uh, maybe you hold that true widows should go to family first, according to 1 Timothy 5, and there can be a reaction against that. And so by association, deacons as they address trouble sometimes are called by that same name. We can see that many troubles do rise up in the church. There are injustices. There is a time when need overcomes supply. We see that here in Acts 6.1. We see that pastors also can be distracted from the work or it's just too much uh, for them to uh, physically uh, even address. And so the first, first point is deacons address trouble. That's that whole realm. This is sobering. And I don't mean to put a dark cloud on you entering the office. I will say, uh, you know, the first trouble that came to the church actually was a trouble of money. The, the word table even used here can be used not only of serving tables that have food, but it can also be serving tables where money was given out like at an accountant's desk. So encouragements. I do, I, when I say something that is sobering at first, I want to bring encouragement along with that. And the encouragements actually are many, uh, having been, again, a deacon since 89, uh, and even as a pastor, I retain some diaconal duties um, that, that, that is fitting. The great, great truth is, as a deacon in the office, you are not alone. You will find there are members that will ally with you and strengthen you. You will find there's other deacons who will jump in and help you. You'll find that pastors will step in and help you. So even though there's trouble... It is this wonderful matter of you have all this support around you. Also, as a deacon, when there's trouble, this is a delight. You're on the front row seat of seeing God resolve that trouble. And that's a delight. When you see, what, what makes you more thankful, that you always had an easy road or that you had a rough spot and you saw God deliver and bring you through that? Is not our praise heightened in that and are we not even stronger as we come through? God uses it for our good. He sanctifies to us our deepest distress. This is part of his doing, and it's amplified to some degree in the office of deacon. In the diaconate, you have the opportunity to achieve a good standing and great confidence in the faith of Christ. This is precious. You know, a lot of times we have to be moved, don't we? The potter has to do some forming on us to be able to have a greater capacity in our faith, a greater capacity to uh, see his wonder. And I'll leave you with this also, this last encouragement. Even though you're called to trouble, I go back to the first miracle of Christ where he turned the water into wine. When I review that event, you know who I would most want to be in that whole scenario? I wouldn't want to be Jesus. There's just way too much there for me to even get my arms around. I wouldn't want to be Mary who's directing Jesus what to do. I wouldn't want to be the master of ceremonies who said, oh, this is really great wine. I mean, that's, that's probably getting close, right? But I would want to be the servant because those servants had a front row seat on the problem, on Christ's action, on the resolution, and the bringing about of a miracle. Who saw more than the servants? Even the master of ceremonies did not know where this came from. But the one serving front line is the one who saw. And that's a blessing. I think those servants had more of a blessing seeing what Christ did in his first miracle than anyone else at that wedding. 
And that's a joy in the office of deacon. So yes, there's trouble that should be sobering, but there are delights and helps that make it more than worth it. And when I look over a long past of diaconal work, I say, thank you, Lord. It's been a privilege. And I have not always known the right answer, and I've had to repent of things, and I've been called trouble, yes. You know, there's been heartache in there, but guess what? It's blessed. The picture is great. And so we, we put our courage together, we trust in the Lord for it, and we, we suffer some things, but it seems like we exalt the Lord in many more things in that office. That's the first point. Deacons address trouble. Moving to our second point under the heading of trouble is the apostles avoid distraction. Here's another element of trouble being caused. With a challenge of 20,000 people, perhaps we can even read verse 2 in an exasperated tone. Let me read it before you. Acts 6, verse 2. And the 12 summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Interesting statement. If you took that at face value, I could see someone construing this to say, oh, so they really aren't interested in the widows, right? It's almost like they're shedding off this responsibility. Hey, it's not right for us that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. We will find this is not at all the case. We will find that in reality, for pastors, for apostles, I will draw a line between those two, very different offices, obviously, but it's too easy to lose focus. It's too easy to have your heart pulled out of the prayer and word that you need to be focusing on to bring God's truth. And they see the source of God's grace, and they will maintain the source of God's grace even when trouble is on the horizon. So they will find they're not saying we will not deal with the widows. In fact, this whole passage is dealing with a way to help the widows. But they are right in that they want to avoid any distraction. I have something I think of in our church over the years. This is a little Georgism. You can take it or leave it. I think of it as the 3% rule. You have a membership. You have attenders. And in my mind, there's at least... 3% that are not happy with your pastor because we're people, because we're sinners, because we view things differently. In a membership, we have 120 people. So we're going to have four people that at any given time in the life of the church, around the year, through every month, good and bad, at least that many that are unhappy with the pastor. It's just sin in our ranks. And you know what? It's easy when one think of think of your life when one person is upset with you how do you feel how are you distracted it's such an easy thing to be distracted and a pastor still needs to say yes we have trouble we're going to deal with the trouble but i've got to maintain preaching i've got to maintain prayer and the ministry of the word because that's our very that's our lifeline that's our source of grace our source of strength it's going to resolve whatever the issue is and it's going to feed the people. It's going to be the medicine in their soul against whatever angst they have. And so just a way to pray for your pastor is to say, Lord, help him to maintain his prayer and his word. This should be readily upon our, our lips as we pray. They were saying, essentially, it would not be pleasing in the eyes of God to stop preaching or the word of God. So yes, we have this problem, we're going to address it, but remember, we cannot leave our first calling. 
It's, it's a great example. And how many churches have lost their way? How many churches have lost their identity? How many churches have devolved to a state where they can't help anybody because they've lost the focus of prayer and the word? And so here we see the necessity of gospel-centered growth. What's the basis of church growth? Huge topic today, right? People want numbers. People want people to, to come in. But the apostles are not willing to become a social organization, but they will keep gospel principles. And part of trouble in the church is not only the people that need to be served, but it's the priority by the pastors that have to be maintained because that can be distracted from, and that's, that's devastating. And the, and the apostles see it. I believe it's a Holy Spirit wisdom upon these apostles to see this and to say this. Mixed opinions on growth. You know, growth is a wonderful thing. In fact, this chapter of Acts, verse 1, starts with growth and the problem. They're going to resolve the problem, and they're going to have growth at the, on, the seventh chapter, on the seventh verse as well. And so it's bookends of this passions we're looking at this morning is growth in the church. It's a wonderful thing. It's blessed if it is growth according to the gospel. But you know what? Growth is ugly if it's someone building their own kingdom. If it's someone acting expediently to say, we want numbers. In fact, one commentator says, the reason Luke counts people is because people count. And so, yes, he's giving numbers. 5,000 come in, 3,000 come in. Um, but what he is saying is not that it's a number. And so church growth, don't we often think two ways about church growth? When it's a gospel-centered church growth, that's glorious. That's God's blessing. But if it's someone building a name for themselves or a kingdom for themselves or using a mechanism to get numbers and cash, it very readily becomes something very ugly. And so, again, the apostles... Avoiding distraction is key to maintaining the gospel element. So wonderful point to have. We have trouble. Point one is that deacons are called to address trouble. Point two is that the apostles avoid distraction. Let's move into guidance, our third point. And we will read verse three. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. See, because they will maintain their gospel priority, they're saying, now let us appoint men to deal with the problem. Wonderful balance, wonderful insight in this passage. So our third point under guidance would be deacons picked and appointed. Very interesting process here. A wise and gracious response is needed to the division and complaints that are being raised in the church. You can't go by gut feel. You can't use a traditional form, either of government or approach. This is new to the diaconate. This, is, this whole process of uh, facing this affliction is a new matter in the church. The church is very young. It is growing. And so here we see management, I will call it management and mission together. They're going to manage the problem of trouble, but they're going to maintain the mission of the church with gospel priority. They've got a hand in each camp, if you will. But they're prioritizing the gospel and they're giving the opportunity for other men to be brought in to the ministry to serve. So after prioritizing prayer and preaching, the apostles make some wise adjustments in their path. People are to choose 
according to their guidelines. There's a wonderful hand and glove reciprocity in this relationship between the apostles and the people. The, the, the apostles give several qualifications and tell the people to choose based on those qualifications. Do you see the handshake here? Do you see how they're working with the apostles, but they are in the front row considering, as they must, who would be put into this position? They're not on the outside simply receiving all the apostles said. The apostles make them an integral part of choosing the deacons. And so you have this, this joining together of both for the betterment of all. And it's not, we're saying this and you're going to do this. And it's not, hey, you're leaders, but we're going to do this regardless of what you say. No, there's a, a beautiful handshaking. And all this is in the face of great complaint. People are upset. And so it's amazing. This just comes together in such a winsome way. So people are to choose according to guidelines. They vote with conscience captured by the word of God. I think it's important that we view voting that way. There's two keys here that work together. In fact, Pastor Sam has just renovated our membership class notes. And we have a large section on the keys of authority that are exercised by the pastors and that is an authority bounded by the word of God in what they are, have authority to do. We call it the key of authority. Members of the congregation have the key of liberty. And that is a key of liberty to operate again according to the word of God. And this is where I think the American idea of liberty is very different. The American idea of liberty is very preferential. This is what I want. This is what I thirst for. This is what I desire. The liberty we express as members in the church with the key of liberty is what are the principles God would have me use to make this choice? My heart is constrained and moved forward by the truths of God's word. I want to vote according to God's word. What about his kingdom? How can I learn from scripture those principles of the kingdom and vote as a member accordingly? See, it's not just a wild, free, fancy preference that's being exercised in the church when it comes to a vote. It's voting so that God's principles are enacted through the people. The, the officer is adopted by the people and appointed by the pastors. And you have this amazing circumspection. I, it's just so many points are hit on this map that gives you a very full view, a very proper view, a very accepting view of people coming into the office. What are some of these qualifications that they bring forth? The apostles specify seven men. So they've even thought about the workload, how much is needed. They are to follow these a list of qualifications. And then they say, we will appoint your choice. So it's almost like the apostles say, with these qualifications, you choose who will serve, and then you bring them to us, and we will have the final appointing of them. In fact, we'll even see that today when we lay hands upon Eddie for the diaconate is that appointing by the pastors. And so brothers, they'd say to the people, you are to employ these six principles. You are to pick the deacons. That's square one. You are to consider who can serve and you are to pick them. Secondly, those are candidates among you, people in your midst. You don't have to go searching out or put out you know, some kind of resume service to find who could be a deacon in your church. They're among you. They give this advice. You are to choose seven men. We've seen that. They are to be of good reputation. So they are to be respected by all. They have, they have had to conduct themselves in a way that gives them a reputation. Doesn't mean perfection, 
but it means there's nothing blameworthy that can be laid at their feet. There's no existing problem. They are respected by all. They have a reputation. Definitely needed for the situation. They have to be full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. So look with these qualifications as you choose from among yourselves these people. Really a, a, a very compact and yet full list of qualifications, isn't it? And yet it's in the hands of the people to choose men to serve under the apostles in this way. And so we see deacons are picked and appointed in a wonderfully circumspect way. There's a lot of wisdom being brought here. And then the uh, principles we see are further delineated that we can use in 1 Timothy 3. Here we have the, those events that ultimately culminated in the distinctions. First uh, Timothy 3, the distinctions, the qualifications are much more defined, aren't they? And so we use those. One of the things that Acts 6 adds to this is the situation at hand of trouble, how the apostles work with the people, how the people choose, the apostles then appoint them, and we see the results of that. And so we, we see these things running together very well. Fourth point under guidance, the second point under guidance, fourth point altogether, we see that the apostles keep focus, right? We heard that they said we should not abandon the word of God. It's not pleasing in God's eyes that we should abandon prayer and the ministry of the word. Here we see that the apostles keep focus. Let us read verse 4. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so if we look at verses 2, 3, and 4, we'll see the, its priority, guidance to the people, and then priority. That they will appoint deacons to duty. They will be devoted to prayer. This is our great need, isn't it? We need God's strength. We need to be oriented and have the perspective of our Lord himself. We can't give up the place of prayer. And prayer, it's too easy to sacrifice, isn't it? In fact, a lot of times, don't we often do prayer while we're doing something else? And yet we see an example of Christ. He would go off in a solitary place to pray. It was filling his whole activity at that time. And so we have to be careful with that. Spurgeon says that a man who does not pray in the ministry is a man who is vain and conceited, relying on his own strength. Yeah, that's, I read that. I got, I got a little rebuked about that. And I said, that's right. I, if, how much do we jump in to solve a problem? I mean, engineer again, you know, let's get in there, find out the problem, let's solve it. First thing is pray and, and, and continue praying. Uh, and remember that my strength, my insight is not going to solve trouble in the church. And in fact, I can, create, I can create another problem by trying to solve one problem. Have you seen that happen? Sometimes our solutions are short-sighted. Prayer is needed in that central place. So where we need to, I think as a blanket statement, we need to repent and pray. We need to, again, see that as a priority. Pray as members, pray as officers in the church. They say here they are going to devote themselves to ministry of the word. And so without preaching, the church dwindles. Without, when, a, when a church begins to slide into becoming a social organization and the great doctrines of who our Heavenly Father is, His identity, His work, His mission, His power, the church dwindles, doesn't it? That is always needed. Preaching gives the church its identity and mission. 
If your identity becomes, we're gonna be a food kitchen for the poor people on this part of town, that's a great need and that's a good work. I'm not knocking that as a work at all. But if that becomes a focus and they lose the identity that they are the bride of Christ, that they are serving Christ, that they are growing and that they are finite beings learning to wonder and glorify a God who is infinite, you can see there's a real difference between the identity between the two. And the word, the ministry of the word is maintained. They will keep their focus upon it. And we find that this has many good effects, particularly in the area of identity and mission. So we see that prayer and the word bring about a sustainment of the identity and mission of the church. It's the only way we can keep it in balance. And they hold to this. It's, it's glorious. They, they, they have drawn the line in the sand. And they're not going to cross into being something else. They will pray and they will have the ministry of the word. This is needed for spiritual direction. This is needed for the disciples. Again, wonderful fact here. Verse 1 and verse 7. It says disciples were added to the church. Have you thought of that? Disciples were added to the church. Prayer and ministry of the word are needed if disciples are going to be brought into the church. You know, when a church grows, it's kind of like the parable of those that had the dragnet and brought in the fish. Some were good and some were bad. And the bad ones had to be thrown out. And when a church grows, there's going to be an ingathering of all sorts of people. There are going to be those that truly profess Christ. There's going to be those that look like they profess Christ. There can be those that are hidden Pharisees. I mean, sin has ravaged every person in our society. And so when they come into the church, you got with, with sinners comes trouble, right? And so here, to have disciples, you're seeing a, a select group of people that come in. They will follow Christ. They will obey Christ. They are disciples. And so the preaching, the prayer, and the word maintain that. Uh, these two elements of prayer and the word are needed for fellowship, for iron sharpening iron. This is also needed for the spiritual battle that is at hand that we face. Our fifth point, now we start the realm of blessing. So we've seen the trouble. We've seen the guidance. What happened? How does the story turn out? How does God's providence unfold in this case? We've got complaining. We've got direction and guidance. Let's read on. This is glorious. Verse 5 and verse 6 together. And what they said... Please the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, and a pro, uh, Nicholas, who was a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Again, you see the handshake between the brethren, the disciples, and the apostles. You see that these men were put into place. So point number five, we have the example here, and I believe we can anticipate church unity. Think of the grumbling and complaining, the jealousy, and some are being served and some aren't. And we arrive at this point in verse five where it says, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. This is a day God is smiling upon the church when all are pleased in the face of trouble about the, the steps that are being taken. And so the direction pleased all. It's amazing given the background of complaints and, and how people were upset. Very interesting feature here. 
all the men selected had Greek names. You have Hebrew widows that were being served. You had Greek widows that were not being served. This gave rise to the dissension when all the disciples chose the people to serve according to the qualifications given by the apostles, all, and all of them had Greek names. All of them were, some in their former days would have considered them outsiders, outside the Orthodox Hebrew, you know, they read a different version of, of the scriptures um, in a different language. So they're not as core as we are. That was erased. That prejudice was put out. And all seven of them were Greek men serving the Greek widows. Probably these men even had a heart because they themselves had been part of those cast out and, and had known the rough life of being thrown out and then being trying to be brought back in. I think men that were selected that had a heart for the widows, that had an affinity and, a, and even a similarity to them. And the key is all were pleased. The Hebrews didn't stand off and say, well, None of those men have Hebrew names, and so we're not really represented in this serving process. That's not there. Everybody agreed, and they give these seven men to the apostles for them to lay their hands upon them. Wonderful aspect, how it meets the situation. Their unity is above race. Their unity is above the problems. Their unity is above the angular personalities that would have been involved and, you know, it's not the fruit of a cookie-cutter approach. We're going to give everybody an even uniform approach into being and serving in this office. They chose the ones according to qualifications. They all agreed. It's a marvelous way that this comes through. When I think about cookie-cutter uh, uh, approach, uh, and this is kind of for Eddie. It's for everybody for where you are in your life, but it's kind of for Eddie as well. A lot of times our officers, when they come in the office, they get the... Yes, we call it the yes man speech. And you are brought into office, the people have recognized your place. You are not to be a yes man. The qualities and gifts God has given you to be your own unique person are those things that should be retained. And you will find when you come in the office, there's going to be other men that have other gifts, and you're going to have a different set of gifts. And so you maintain that. The world has a saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. I believe the way God puts together officers in a church, we can say a chain can be as strong as its strongest link if there's unity and if each one is playing with the role and the gifts that God has given them. Let me give you an example. Uh, you have five men that compose a pastorate. One of them is very well versed in legal matters. He can speak, if there's unity, he can speak of those legal matters that will help the church and all the pastorate will exert that better knowledge and education of how things should be legally handed. Maybe one guy's very good at finance. He can speak and all gain the benefit of that person's expertise. One is trained and, and theological and, and knows how to put together an amazing amount of, of, of doctrine and put it together and apply it. He can speak into a group that has unity and all the pastorates. So the, the way God puts officers together, he can make it as strong as its strongest link if there's unity. I find the same thing in premarital counseling. Sometimes a couple will say, we're just a little too different. We're wondering if that's going to be healthy in our relationship. It's very healthy if you have unity. In fact, if you have two parents that are really different from each other, and if they have unity, they have a broader base of experience and knowledge to 
watch over their own children if there's unity. And so it's a marvelous aspect that, uh, that brings this about. So that's, that's the, what we call the yes man speech. Uh, God has ordained through the people, through qualification, you come in the person you are. You don't need to change to be like one of the other officers. And I don't, I'm not that I'm thinking you were thinking that, but we always say that because we want to emphasize uh, the uniqueness and what God is bringing to your church is a gift. All right, let's go to our sixth and final point under blessing so we can anticipate church unity, point five, point six. I believe in this example, we can anticipate divine blessing. God continues the increase, verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many priests became obedient to the faith. So here we see God continued the increase of the word. Again, this is that first priority put forth, isn't it? The word in its increase. How do we think of this increase? Probably its extent. It probably went farther. With the focused prayer life and ministry of the word that the apostles devoted themselves to, we probably see a greater depth and power of the word that was presented, so it increased. Deacons are called to trouble but here we see that there is blessing through that trouble being resolved. So we're back on the growth path again. And maybe we should be expecting trouble of another sort as people come together. But we can expect God's hand, guidance, and blessing even further uh, as that continues. But I believe here the, the blessing, I think we can think of it in three ways. There's a divine blessing, there's a common blessing, and there's an uncommon blessing. So the divine blessing is that the, the word increased. It went out to more numbers. It went out with more power. It, it was the driving force. When we talk about that beloved gospel growth, this is because the word went forth. This is wonderful. It's extent, power, it's esteemed, it's obeyed, it's a priority. These, this is the right place of, of the word of God. The number of disciples, I think, it also increased. In fact, it doesn't even say that just increased. It says the number of disciples multiplied greatly. So it's sort of a generic, this is the common part. You have the divine, the common, the divine blessing, common blessing, uncommon blessing. And so here you have the common blessing of disciples coming into the church. It doesn't say attenders or seekers, tasters of religion. It says disciples came into the church. Points to the spiritual character of their advancement under the word of God. And this is a general blessing, a great blessing. I, by, by saying a common blessing, I don't mean we esteem it any less. This is a great blessing, and it's even more wonderful that it's common to all that hear the word of God, that they can grow as disciples. And then we also have here a unique blessing. A great many, again, not just a few, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So they're in Jerusalem, this explosion of disciples. Jerusalem is kind of like the headquarters of the enemy. Those that opposed Christ. Those that had a united institution to oppose Christ, to put him on the cross, to, to squelch the work wherever they could. And disciples commonly are growing up and, and in great numbers influencing Jerusalem. And then you see a, a great many of the priests, the educated the prime ones that were geared to oppose Christ, oppose this work, oppose everything. And it reminds us again 
that as they became, as the priests became obedient to the faith, they actually had a lot of repentance to do, didn't they? They repented and obeyed in the faith. We also see that because someone is religious cannot be equated either with being saved. You might be extremely religious, but you are not saved. They, these priests were extremely religious. They were extremely educated. They are probably well off. I mean, they're paying off the soldiers on one hand to, to squelch the work and revelation of Christ. So their religion was actually the very opposite of being saved. It was to oppose the work. But a great many of them, do you see God's gracious hand in this? You see the uniqueness of this blessing. Those that we might think are the last ones who would come and obey in faith of, to Christ, we find that they are brought in in great numbers. And this is a, a tremendous blessing on the heels of solving the trouble, seeing deacons in place. God continues growth with the priority of the word. And you see just this amazing fact that the fiercest enemies of Christ are brought. And, and if we're in a religious background, we have to check that. It might mean we're on the wrong side. There needs to be repentance. There needs to be coming to Christ. There needs to be an obedience. And look at the words that's used of them. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. And they think of what they left in Moses. I mean, Moses, a remarkable man. I read about Moses in Hebrews, and my mind is just explodes with what a great man he was. I can, I can see some of the reasons people looked at Moses and said, we're holding on to Moses with everything we've got, and they used it not to accept Christ, where he was a forerunner, even pointing to Christ. But they had to give up that position, their place in society, their place in the temple, their place among their peers and colleagues, and repent of that and come to Christ. This is a unique and great blessing, it's, and it's in Jerusalem, the headquarters. I mean, the Lord is just striking at the very top of the, of the food chain here, I guess. I, I'm trying to think of a better word. Sorry, that's probably not the right word. But he's the top of element of the enemy, and he's taking it down in grace with blessing and obedience to the faith. That should be our goal. And whatever we have to check in our lives and say that might not be an element of following Christ, we need to get to the point where we've repented and we are obedient to the faith with a whole heart. That's what we're seeing here. So great blessing. Those are the six points. I will conclude with several items to consider. First application, protect the priority of the gospel. Is not that blessing? Is that our, not our connection with the infinite that we hear his word? He proceeds. We pray unto him for light. We have the ministry of the word at every level, member, deacon, pastor, this should be our endeavor to protect the priority of the gospel, to guard against uh, pastors being overburdened in a situation, to see how we can help, to watch out for them as they watch out for you. We want passionate preaching of the word. We want a com compassionate ministry. We want to be free of all gimmicks. We want to be free of distraction. This is what we need to do. We need to protect the priority of the gospel. Do all that we can to see that there's, they're able to express their devotion to prayer and to the word. Secondly, protect the unity of the church. Expect problems in the church. I think this is a real view. I love it when the gospel's real. You know, there's so many blemishes that aren't hidden away in the people of God. And do you love them? Oh, yeah, we love them. We're so happy 
that the Lord has brought them into a, a friendly relationship with us, but it doesn't hide the blemishes. Some, like Rahab, still get called Rahab the harlot by her former profession, but she is in Christ, and, and we love the faith that she expresses. And even the title that stayed with her in, in the scriptures, it's just not hiding the blemishes. But how glorious and how wonderful, what a work of, that he, it reminds us actually of anything, that the work again that God has done to make her pure, make her part of the line of Christ. I mean, just a, a glorious reality. So as we protect the unity, I think part of it is saying, well, when sinners get together, they bring trouble with them. We expect something of trouble. We will exercise patience and temperance and a directness of the gospel to meet that situation. We expect it. it should it really surprise us? when someone goes off and astray. We should be saying, we, in a sense, we expect some of this, but we should also have a response and a ready engagement. Someone starts to wander off, let's, let's go. We kind of expected this. We've got some, some understanding of the scriptures that we can bring to be of help to them. So protect the unity of the church, address troubles while maintaining gospel priorities. Thirdly, Promote a qualified sharing of the ministry. That's why we're here today. That's the or deacon ordination is a qualified sharing of the ministry. It happens at the level of your pastor. It happens at the level of the members. It happens at the member of our, our deacon as well. And so it's a huge problem, huge problem, to have someone unqualified in the office. And so a qualified sharing of the ministry Look among you for candidates in the church. This can be an ongoing look as the church grows. Just in general, be on the lookout for those that might fill the position. Often, and someone already mentioned this, often ordination is just a name change. People gifted to serve often start serving. That gets recognized. They break brought into the office. And I'm, I marvel at how many of our deacons and pastors, by the time they were brought in the office, it really was a name change. It's an official stepping into the office, definitely, but the manner of life comes in. Fourthly, and here's my charge to our deacon and a charge to the congregation. Brother Eddie, soon to be Deacon Eddie, maintain these principles that we see in Acts 6 to see the protection of a gospel focus and an administration for the unity of Christ's disciples. That's our, one of our lessons from Acts 6. Maintain and grow in the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3. By the way, brethren, we can pray for him on this. And by the way, 1 Timothy 3 are qualifications that all of us should have. But when they are confirmed and gifted in a man, then they are brought to the office of deacon. But we should not see 1 Timothy 3 as foreign to any of us. We should all be growing in this way. When God gifts a man and graces him by his Holy Spirit with the qualification of 1 Timothy 3, beautiful, bring that one in and also continue to grow, brother, in these very same qualifications. Also, maintain a personal devotion to prayer and the word to keep yourself on track even with your diagonal duties. You're not only preparing the way for your pastor to have prayer and the word as his prime focus, but it is going to benefit you and aim you, aim you on the right, keep you on the right track as well. We already talked about being your own man, the yes man talk. We've, we're, we're there. Uh, grow and wisdom and repentance in an exemplary fashion. 
Because the more visibility you receive, now you have the great opportunity as well to, uh, when, when something doesn't go right, you own up, you get the help of people. We understand. I mean, and, and many will jump at your side. Uh, that's a blessing as well. They will jump at your side to help. Uh, but do these things as an example. And remember that you have many encouragements despite trouble that you will face. And it will, your blessings will outweigh the trouble. That's how Christ ordains it. He will grow you and he will bring you through. You will grow. You will, you will grow and you will discern more uh, with every experience. You will set yourself to love the brethren. There's a uh, earlism here that he often would say. He would say, to live above with those we love, oh, that'll be glory. But to live below with those we know, that's another story. <laughs> and so you will have these experiences of seeing where brethren are at, still exercising a love for them, and often that will be reciprocated as well. They will love you for loving them. And it's just, it's a family bond, isn't it? We're a hospital of growing disciples. We're not a museum of venerated saints. And, and this is part of that equation. And so we should have that love and that unity that overcomes the blemishes that we're going to find in one another. That's family. And you're in a family that will be eternal. Aren't you glad he gave us this much time to get used to each other, even before eternity? You have the opportunity to see grace in operation being frontline. You also have the opportunity to have a good standing and a great, what the Bible calls, a great confidence and faith, in, of faith in Christ. So wonderful, that's a charge to you as deacon. I pray those remember and the Lord will grace you. Charge the congregation. Pick your deacons according to biblical qualifications. I think, obviously, we're at the ordination service. The cow is out of the barn. But it still bears repeating that your deacon has been selected by biblical qualifications. Encourage him in this. Honor his office. And help him in his office as well. Help him meet the principles and qualifications that he is called to. It is for your own good as well. Cultivate a helper attitude in his tasks, not a judging attitude of his tasks. Everything will be sweeter if you come alongside and make it better. If someone's working a garden, don't more hands make the, like, make the work easier, lighter, and more profitable at the same time? So cultivate that helper attitude for his tasks. It's not him trying to show us all that he can do and we approve or not approve. That's a tough road for anyone to follow. But if you have a helper attitude, you see something good and you say, that was well done. And you see something that's not so good, you can be patient with that. Or if you have something constructive to offer in a way that will encourage him, do that as well. But the helper attitude, it's going to bless him. It's going to bless you. It's going to ultimately feed into the gospel growth that we desire in the church. Also, pray for him and encourage him. Prayer, prayer is really on all of us, isn't it? Again, a great lesson from this passage is the, is the high place of prayer. And then remember, ultimately, members, you labor together for gospel. You labor together for unity. And now he has made an ordered part of administration in the church. This is 
Christ's glorious gift to you. Last point of application. Can't, I can't escape this one. Praise God for the increase of his word. Praise God for the divine blessing he brings, the common blessings that are significant. I, I almost want to find another word than common, but the common blessings of God that are for all of us richly to enjoy and the unique blessings that God will give you in this place and who he will bring. Our hearts should be open wide and thanking the Lord. Our hearts should be singing his praise. He brings the word. He is the object of our prayers. He gives us guidance to solve troubles in the church. He brings greater blessing on top of that. He brings renewed growth. This is all his good doing. We praise him from beginning to end. Many churches face troubles, and have we not seen him bring so many churches through those troubles as well? Tighter is a family, helping each other more and more, delighting in one another. These are the things that God does. So re rejoice in gospel growth. He brings us the gospel front and center. We can praise him richly for all that he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel at your love for your church. Indeed, she is the bride of Christ. How else can we explain such a dear adoration and attention and care that she receives from your hand other than she would be marked as one that is closest to you than any other? We bless you and praise you for your goodness to resolve our troubles, to grant us guidance from your word, and to bring forth your blessing so rich. We are worthy of none of it, and Christ is worthy for the praise of all of it. We thank you for a Savior like him. We thank you for your Heavenly Father, your decree of goodness and kindness, generosity that we see from you towards us. And we bless you for your Holy Spirit who comes alongside, gives that wisdom, gives that administration, gives that blessing of unity, even when there's trouble in the church, using it to extend your blessings to us. We thank you and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.